When I was a child, my grandparents had a farm that was about an hour north of Hayes. And my sister and I, being city kids, loved to go to the farm. It was just an adventure. I mean, I loved to ride in the tractor with my grandpa, ride the combine. Uh, my sister and I loved to go uh, feed the chickens and pick up the, the uh, eggs that the hens would lay. Uh, we loved to go into the barn and go get in the, the hay loft and jump on a big pile of hay down below. It was just awesome. Great adventure. And for us, in some ways, living in the city, it felt like we were going back about 40 years in time when we went to the farm. One of the unique things about my grandparents' farmhouse was that they had a telephone that was on a party line. Now, some of you may not know what a party line is, but actually it's a line that five or six farm neighbors would share the same phone line. And so each home would have their own unique ring that would signal if the call was for them or if it was for one of the neighbors. And so my grandparents, I can still remember, their ring was three short rings. It was a ring, 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 and that was their phone call. If it was a different kind of ring, it was one of the other neighbors' phone call. And so the amazing thing about a party line is that uh, you could pick up your phone and you could listen to the conversation your neighbor was having with somebody else on the phone. And my sister and I, just that just blew us away to think that that would happen. And so we knew we weren't supposed to do that. But when my grandparents were away from the house, every once in a while, my sister and I, we'd pick the phone up and we'd listen to one of the neighbor's phone conversations. It was kind of tantalizing to think that you could listen in to somebody else's phone conversation. So we're in the midst of a sermon series called, What Would Jesus Pray? And last week we talked about, or we looked at, the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus invites us to go to the Father with boldness and confidence, with reverence, with familiarity, so that we could go to, to our God, our Father, in prayer on a regular basis. In fact, He gave us the Lord's Prayer as a model for our own prayer life that would guide us as we pray to the Father in, in, in our own prayer life. And, and this passage today... It's actually the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in Scripture. And the great thing is, is that he's praying for us, his disciples. And we have this, this recorded in Scripture for us. And, and just like a party line, Jesus is inviting us to listen into this conversation with God. And it's amazing to see what was happening in the midst of this uh, conversation. Jesus speaks of the completion of, his, of the tasks that he had on earth. And, and he prays earnestly for his follow, followers, both the believers who were with him, but also the believers that were yet to come. And it's an amazing prayer, and it offers us a glimpse into what Jesus, uh, who, tr- who Jesus truly is in relationship to the Father. And it gives us a portrait of those things that are close to Jesus' heart in his last day here on earth. And we know from reading the Gospels that Jesus uh, had a, a spirituality that was visible. He didn't hide his spiritual relationship with the Father. In fact, he exhibited a spiritual life of worship and prayer and devotion and love that left a huge impact on all of his followers. When men and women witnessed his spirituality, they were changed. Our hope is that we, as we explore this prayer in a deeper way, that we too are changed by the depth of Jesus' words, by the depth of the love that he demonstrated for his Father, but also by the depth of his love for us. And on one hand, this prayer um, becomes again a model for us, illustrating again the sort of intimacy and confidence that we can experience as we approach our Heavenly Father. But on the other hand, it also gives us insight into the character of relationship within God's selfhood. This is the Father and the Son exhibiting uh, the intimacy, the community that is native to their life together in the Trinity. 
The prayer invites us into this quality of intimacy. The, the oneness that Jesus enjoys with His Heavenly Father is a oneness that we're invited to participate with. Again, His prayer from verses 20 and 21 says, My prayer is that all of them may be one, Father, just as You are in Me and I am in You. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that You have sent Me. We're invited into this conversation with Jesus and with his Father. So after Jesus had prayed for himself, the first eight verses of this chapter, he then prays for his own personal disciples, and after that he prays for those who will be their disciples, literally for us, eventually. And like a shepherd who's about ready to lay down his life for his flock, uh, he prays for this flock whom he's led and, and now must persevere without him. Uh, His first concern for his disciples is that they remain united as they live on in this mission without him here on earth. And look at verse 11. Jesus prays, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Again, remarkably, he desires that his disciples enjoy this intimacy and, and oneness that he experiences with his heavenly Father. And the reason for his concern is that his, his ministry, including his leadership and, and his uh, unifying presence with the disciples, is going to end with his departure. And so he's praying. He's praying for the disciples who are going to be going on without him being there. And his disciples remain in the world. And, and earlier in the evening, it's recorded in John chapter 15, Jesus told the disciples that the world would not be a very friendly place for his disciples. And yet, still, we can see the mission in this prayer, the mission of the church, the task of Jesus' followers is to challenge the world, to draw out those who love the truth, and to bring them into the flock, into God's very family. And next, Jesus' next concern for the disciples is their sustenance and their strength in the world. The assignment that Jesus gives to us, to his disciples, ourselves included, is a dangerous one. He says it's dangerous in this passage. And he prays for their strength and their protection. And we're told in the the prayer that Jesus has given them his word. In verse 14, he prays that his word is present. He also prays, or he talks about in in the greater passage, that the Spirit's going to recall this word and he's going to keep it secure uh, in their lives. And the word, this divine revelation, will become essential equipment in their testimony and in their survival in the world. And Jesus also prays for their protection, particularly from Satan, who's going to remain in the world, and Jesus is going to leave them. And he recognizes this power of evil because he just lost one of his disciples to Satan. Judas left the band of the disciples even that evening to go and to betray the Son of God uh, into the hands not only of the enemy, but especially even to Satan. And he understands that representing God in this world uh, is an invitation to a genuine battle. You see, when we become Christians, we give our life to Christ, we enter into a battleground. We don't always see it or feel it, but, but Jesus talks about it over and over again. There's a spiritual battle that's going on all over the, the world. And Jesus, Jesus worked in the world. He was resisted by Satan, but Jesus never succumbed. But now the disciples are going to remain and they're going to contend with the powers of evil uh, since they remain and they try to advance the kingdom of God. And in verse 11, he prays that God's name would be a refuge for all of them. And it reminds me of Proverbs 18.10 where the word says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it 
and are safe. And then his third concern that he prays for his uh, present disciples, the twelve and, and other disciples uh, while he was in doing ministry, has to do with holiness. There's a spiritual dilemma that all disciples uh, face uh, because we live in the world. And yet Jesus says that, that we're not of the world, even though we live in the world. And it points out our, specific, our location geographically, but it also helps us understand that we have a different position spiritually. When we place our faith in Christ, our home shifts from this world to the kingdom of God. And the world is a place of spiritual darkness and unbelief, but a Christian is no longer a citizen of this world, but of God's kingdom. And we are like travelers who are passing through a foreign land until we can be reunited with Christ uh, in, in God's kingdom. And Jesus prays that his disciples might be sanctified. That's a big word. We don't use it a lot uh, these days. But he prays that they might be sanctified in truth. He says in verse 17, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now the word sanctified in this passage means to make something holy. But the means to achieving the holiness is through separation. So that anything that belongs to God or serves his purposes should consider itself holy and set apart from common use. Now, to think about this, help us understand that. When I was, uh, again, when I was a child, my uh, family, whenever we would have a meal, we would use common tableware. We'd use the same dishes and, and bowls, and, and, and we'd use the same thing for every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But when my family would host really special guests, my mom would go to the, the China hutch, and she'd pull out her china, and that's when we knew it was a really special occasion. And now my sister and I understood we were not supposed to use the china for everyday use, but only on special occasions. But the china was set apart for something special. And in the same way, when we give our lives to Christ, when God calls us into his family, God sets us apart. He sanctifies us for his use, his special use. Now, we're not to be like china that's only used every once, once every two or three months, but regular. we're used by God on a regular basis for his special purposes. So if we understand sanctified to mean set apart, then we need to understand that Jesus likewise was set apart and sent into the world. He was separated. He was made holy for a divine mission. And so sanctification always is for mission since it's God's activity in the world. So we're sanctified in order that we can bring truth and grace and love and light and salvation to the rest of the world. Think about it this way. When Jesus called his disciples, we have this, this kind of this call pattern that would take place. Especially he called uh, uh, Simon and Andrew. He, he said a very simple phrase. He said, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of others, of, of all people. And in that process, he's saying, come, that's the calling. Come and follow me. The, the following me was going to be a sanctification because they literally, when they followed Jesus, they were following literally the living word of God. And so earlier he talked about sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Jesus, the living word of God in their presence was sanctifying them as they were following Jesus. And why did he do all this? Why did he call them? Why did he sanctify them? There's a mission connected to this. So come and follow me and I will make you fishers of everyone. Of all people. So the same thing happens for us. And so uh, they, the, he, his prayer was, he was praying that the disciples would understand that they have a mission 
that's similar to that of Jesus and that they would see their purposes for living as not their own, but shaped by the mission that God has for them. And we too are like the disciples. We've been called to follow Christ. We've been transformed by the work of God's word, the living word of Christ, but also God's word and scripture through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we're transformed into holy children of the living and awesome and mighty God so that we might invite others to join us in this kingdom feast that we've stumbled into by God's grace. Now we're called to go out and invite others to be a part of this great feast of God's people uh, inviting as many people as we can into that feast. It's kind of like as believers, we're, we're kind of like people who are transit on, or in transit by train. You know how a train travels and it stops at various towns. It picks up more passengers on the way to its destination. In a similar way, we're called by God as we travel through this world on a destination to be with God forever. We're called as, this, as the train stops in the villages to get out on the platform and invite as many people onto that train as well to be a part of what God is doing and especially the destination that God is leading us to. So we're called and we're sanctified and we're set apart to be used by God in the mission of taking the good news everywhere that we go. Now Jesus, he's been praying for his own disciples and now he shifts the prayer to not only his disciples, but also for the disciples that are going to come as these disciples live into the mission of God. Jesus turns to these followers whom he's not met yet, uh, men and women who are going to become followers of Jesus. And in fact, he's praying for the church today. He prayed, literally, for you and me. We're in that last part of the prayer. Who are going to carry the mission set down by Jesus during his final week. So he prays that we, as these disciples that are to come, that we would have a unity like that of his first disciples. So this unity must be, a, must be visibly based on love so that when the world sees us, it's going to know that we are followers of Jesus. He said earlier in the same evening, he said, By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But this love and unity is not going to happen by a a moral effort, by our own energy. It's going to be an outgrowth of this union that we have as we join ourselves to Jesus himself. And it's a union that's dependent on the oneness of, of the Father and the Son. And a union that's born when the Father and the Son indwell within us when we believe and we're given new birth in our lives through Christ Jesus. You know, this week I read this prayer a number of times as I was preparing for the message, and I was struck by how often Jesus emphasized relationship in the midst of this prayer. That within the personhood of God, there's a social dynamic, there's a desire for community, there's a yearning for conversation. Jesus talks at length to his Father, and we sense from the words that this is a conversation that's been going on for quite some time. We're just kind of jumping into the middle of this conversation. And it seems that Jesus lives in conversation with the Father. And the amazing thing is that because Jesus has taken on our flesh and he's died on the cross for our sins, he now invites us into that same relationship with the Father. And as the Father and the Son indwell within us through the Holy Spirit, now our spirituality is not a static experience. It's defined literally by our relationship to the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And our spirituality is less about a position of, or our status, and it's more about our relationship with God. 
if you could think of it this way, if you were to ask me to define marriage for you, I would be poorer if I was to describe marriage as a status or as a vocation. And marriage is not defined by a couple who lives in the same home together. Marriage is not defined by a piece of paper that we call a marriage license, right? You know, if I, I would do better if I would talk about marriage really being about transparency and an intimate union and life with one another, with one called to be in the marriage relationship with me. The essence of marriage is this lifelong relationship lived out with a spouse who I'm called to know and to be known, whom I called, I'm called to love and be loved, who I'm called to serve and they serve me as well. Now, if you ask Diane today, she might say she does more of the serving than I do. But we're called into this intimate, intimate relationship that's at the center of a marriage. And so it's the same way with the Christian life. The Christian life is a conversation. It's a dynamic conversation. It's a dynamic relationship in which um, it's a result of our, our new birth. That's when the talking begins. That God's Word now becomes the lifeblood of our relationship with God and our talking develops an intimacy and a, with a profound relationship dimension to it. And our talking with God is just simply prayer. That's what it is. When we share our most intimate feelings and thoughts, uh, we share our concerns, our hopes, our desires. And God speaks through His Word and through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And He shares with us His love for us. He shares His dreams for His children. He shares His purposes for us, His will for us, and so much more. Prayer is the ultimate divine human encounter. And Jesus invites us and shows us the way to have this kind of relationship with the Heavenly Father. And Jesus in this prayer envisions envisions a profound spiritual intimacy that changes human life. As the church thrives in an authentic, shared community rooted in unity, it bears witness to the call and the truth of the gospel. Literally, as the body of Christ, the church bears the call of God to the world because it is the manifestation of His love and, and the glory of God in the world. Think of it this way. Jesus was the bearer of God's glory when he was on earth. And now the church bears that glory alone. Look again at his words in verses 22 and 23. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Now, if we were to kind of follow the progression of God's glory here on earth, you know, we could go all the way back to Exodus and we would see His glory resided in a mountain, Mount Sinai, and He met Moses at the mountain. And through the covenant, uh, His glory left the mountain and it took up residence in the Ark of the Covenant, in the tabernacle, in the presence of the Israelites and their community. That's where God's glory resided. And then when Jesus came to earth, the Word tells us that, that the glory shifted from the temple to, to become literally on the mantle and through the life of Jesus. That, that glory of God resided with Jesus. But now the, his disciples become the, the bearers of God's glory in their unified community. God's glory literally indwells the believers of Christ with the glory of God. And we know this happened permanently when God gave the church the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And, and so, church, did you know? Do you understand that that we literally are the ones who bear the glory of God here on earth, in and through the church, in and through our life together, in and through our shared 
mission together. It makes me think of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, where Paul writes, We have this treasure, the treasure being God's glory, in jars of clay. And the jars of clay are our human, broken, fallen bodies. We have the treasure in jars of clay to demonstrate that this all-surpassing power, the glory of God, is from God and it's not from us. Paul's saying basically the same thing. The confidence of the church, the church's mission rests here. If we, as the church, live in the Spirit, and thereby if we are living in with the Son and with the Father, if we reflect God's glory and His love, if we show a unity and practice born by a shared knowledge of God, our testimony will astonish the world. This is the essence of Jesus' vision for the church. It's not to be just a community that heals people just so they will be whole, though healing is really important. It's not to just be a community that teaches people uh, so they'll be gratified by knowledge, though wisdom is important and valued. It's not to be just a community that evangelizes so that the church is going to grow, though the mission of the world is crucial. The church is a community that invites people to touch the glory of God. And, and then to be changed by the glory of God in our presence and to bear witness to that in the world. Again, earlier in the evening, he said, This is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit and showing yourselves to be my disciples. Spiritual fruit is essentially demonstrating, showing the glory of God. It glorifies God. I think that concept ought to cause us to ask some important questions about our, our life together as the church. And important, I think, is, is very basic is, is God glorified here? It's a question that should accompany every decision, every choice that every believer makes. So how does the church bear fruit that glorifies God? I want us to just look at four, practically four ideas as we kind of get to an end in the message that come out of this prayer in chapter 17. So this is going to demonstrate how do we bear fruit and we glorify God. First of all, we need to understand that people are looking for the reality of God. People are searching. They're looking. You know, modernity kind of supposed that, that suggested that rationalism might do away with religion. But we have moved into a postmodern world that has proved just the opposite is the case. Spiritual interest is everywhere today. People are looking everywhere, but they're also looking for every spiritual option to decide if it's truth or if it's not truth. So, but they're looking, they're seeking God, and they're seeking the places that God seems to be present. So just in this prayer, think about what Jesus prays, that his disciples will experience the indwelling of God, experience his glory, experience his holiness, be transformed by his truth, and be filled with the joy of God. You want to talk about experiencing the living presence of God in your life? That's what the world is looking for. That's what people are looking for. And they're asking the question, is God real? And if he is, how might my life encounter God? Jesus prays in this prayer, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So we need to ask ourselves in light of this, when people look at me, when they look at our church, do they encounter the living God in and through us? And we need to pray that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit. The second reality is that people are looking for sound teaching. They're looking for the truth. The church bears witness as we give guidance. 
Now we must anchor our experiences in the Word of God given historically through the person of Jesus Christ. But Jesus, in the prayer again, he, pray, he prays, Sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. Now the Spirit of God never contradicts what has been given to us by Jesus Christ in history. And we need to re- realize that the church abides in the vine, the living Word. And the church knows its shepherd's voice, the voice of the living Word. So in light of that, we need to ask ourselves, what is my life? What is our church teaching others about God? And we need to pray that we would desire the living uh, Word of God in our own lives. A third reality in this this prayer is that people are looking for compelling community. People are, are alienated. They feel lonely in our culture They feel disconnected from relationships and from place and from friends. And and Jesus prays that the church would be a genuine community of strong unity. And if you trace the theme of unity throughout this chapter, this prayer, it shows how much this subject really weighed on the heart of Jesus. The power of Jesus' love and his community will bear witness, the strongest witness to our world. Earlier the same evening, Jesus had stated that they, they, the world, or unbelievers will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Unity, we understand, is hard, and it comes at a high cost. And often it involves us submitting our wills to the, to the wills and the desires of other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's part of what happens in the church. But, but ultimately, if we really want to experience unity, it's all of us submitting all of our wills and our desires to the will of our Heavenly Father. There's a humility that takes place uh, when we value unity, where we say, not my will, but your will be done, God. And I would contend that as we live in a fractured and a divided culture, our costly unity as the church will shine as a beacon of hope in a dark and a sharply divided world. Jesus said, love one another, love your neighbor as yourself. So therefore, we need to ask the question, are people attracted to God through a relationship with me or with our church, or are they repelled by those relationships? We need to pray for the unity of believers. The last reality, people are lost, broken, and hurting and are in desperate need of the saving mission of the church. The church possesses a mission, a cause, Just as Jesus had a mission in the world, Jesus' mission becomes our mission. Jesus, we're told in the New Testament, came to heal the brokenhearted. He came to set the captives free. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to give sight to the blind. He came to make disciples. He came to serve. So with the presence of the Holy Spirit, we have the power of Christ at work in and through us. And the unity of the church and the quality of our life and our love and our experiences lead not only to the glory of God, but to a powerful testimony to an unbelieving world. Christians do the work of Christ in the world. We are His hands and His feet, bringing kingdom reality wherever we go. If not us, who? If not now, when? When I think about this this call to the mission of God. I also think about, go back to Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah, who would become a great prophet for God, Isaiah's in the temple. He had gone to just worship like any other time. He'd gone to worship God in the temple. For whatever reason, that day, God revealed basically his full divine nature to Isaiah. And, and Isaiah falls to the ground. He realizes he is worshiping a holy, awesome, 
other God than himself, and he is a man who is not worthy. He's a man, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, living amongst the people of unclean lips. And in this image, also we see an image where an angel of God comes and takes a coal from the altar and, and places that coal on his unclean lips and, and basically purifies his lips and purifies his life. Basically, he's sanctifying Isaiah in that process. And later on, Isaiah hears the call of, of God literally calling out, And whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah, in, in, now that he's been transformed and he's been sanctified, he's humbled by the presence of God. Basically, he raises his hand and he said, Here I am, God. Send me. Send me. The same call is going out today to the church. God is saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? The question is, are we willing to raise our hand? Say, God, here we are. Here we are. Send us. So we need to pray that we would be a sent people. So Jesus ends his prayer by indicating that all who accept Jesus, all who embrace him and the Father, will experience the divine love that's known only between the Father and the Son. We see again in this prayer that we are loved by God with the same love that he holds for his precious Son. And our lives are transformed by the life of Christ, who now takes up residence in our own lives. And these are the last words that Jesus prays before he's arrested in the Gospel of John. He prays that I may be in them. His last desire is to love his followers, us, and to indwell within us, to fill us with the glory and the joy that he has known, so that our knowledge of God will be surpassed and overwhelming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this prayer that's recorded in your word, this, literally this window into this conversation, divine conversation that Jesus has with you, and, and that we can see the closeness, the intimacy of your relationship. But you're not in a relationship where you exclude us, but rather you've invited us to be a part of that very relationship, to have the same intimacy, to have the same oneness, the same unity that the Godhead has. And God, we, we're grateful for the work of Christ and the invitation by Christ to join this divine conversation. And God, we realize too that this work that you're doing, this, this unity and this sanctification that you're bringing about in our lives, this transformation, it's done so that we might be light to others, that we might be able to share with others the power of your love. Your invitation for all to come and be a part of this amazing, intimate, compelling community that you exist and dwell amongst your believers. God, we pray that we might be found faithful, that we would yearn to spend time with you as Jesus spent, spends time with you. God, that's the heart of our prayer. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.